Studies program at the Jindal School of Art and Architecture. Thanks, Dhruvi, and you forgot to introduce yourself. Dhruvi. I am Dhruvi. <laughs> <laughs> And a second year student in our BA Built Environment Studies program here at the Jindal School of Art and Architecture. Okay. Um, so thanks to me for introducing Dr. Maringanti. I have known Anand for many years, what, two decades almost now? And we've worked on a number of projects together off and on. I'll start, start off with a somewhat exotic question, Anand. That how can we humanize spaces in our cities? Let me elaborate a bit on this that I personally, I study urban spaces primarily from a technical perspective, looking at the physical morphology of built environments. But it is hard to ignore the fact that our cities are brutal for a large majority of the inhabitants and not just in terms of the layout of the spaces or the hard architecture, but as much in how the very people who run the city, who are in a sense the lifeblood of the city are the most marginalized, right? So do you think that this moment, COVID-19 and the national lockdown, which has kind of brought these previously hidden inhabitants of the city to the forefront, would do anything really their relationship to the city. I'm not talking about other people's understanding of all the hidden people in a sense, but the hidden people themselves that change their sense of ownership, of belonging, that does it create a reaction, what you call the democratization of practice and theory. Thank you, Girish. Thank you for having me here. Um, I wish I could actually um, make such an assertion that uh, the the hitherto marginalized invisibilized populations have suddenly found their voice uh, and have claimed the city uh, i don't think anything like that has happened um, but um, when i say that there is a certain kind of democratization of theory and practice that's going on i think we need to take that with a um, in, in, in a little more humbler way, a little more modest way of thinking about what kinds of new practices have emerged. And I think that in that sense, um, you take places like Dharavi or Cheetah Camp in Bombay, where people actually mapped out the different kinds of public resources that are available to them, taking charge of them and said, look, let us deal with this, right? The, they, they, they actually went out of all the way to court officials from the government, from the civil society and said, let's sort this out together. And I think that kind of a claim um, and, 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 and an assertion to say that this is something that we have to sort out by ourselves, um, looks like an abandonment by the uh, state, right? That's one negative way in which we can read that, that the, that the state has consistently, repeatedly, all over the world, um, pushed people towards a complete sense of abandon uh, where they had to look out for themselves. And I think that in different places, people have sorted it out in different ways. In some cases, uh, people have jumped up and said, okay, let's try and build local knowledge systems. In some cases, people said, let's try and figure out 
how we can deploy older knowledge systems. In some places, people said, let's try and figure out how to work with the tiny little networks that are available to us, because structurally, this is never going to be sorted out. And in some cases, some groups of people said, it's just not going to work for us. Let's walk out of the city and, and go back home to our villages. So the responses have been very varied. What I think is very heartening is that because of the, the entire experience of uh, so many scales of governance, so many scales of experience completely crashing in on the household, you know, on, on the built unit that is supposed to hold the family together, um, that both exposed the vulnerabilities, the older fractures inside that system, the violence inside the household, um, but also at the same time brought out some of the best uh, in, in uh, what it means to be human. You know, I've seen men um, feeling so disturbed by uh, looking at small kids walking the hot tar uh, uh, roads and, and being moved enough to rush off to a, a footwear store and buy bundles of footwear and come onto the road to give that to the kids. Um, we've seen uh, people going out to actually give information to people, um, to people with whom they wouldn't talk normally. Um, people reaching out to, to uh, give assurance to people. Um, all of this has definitely happened. And, and within that, I think we have the elements or the seeds of a new democratic practice where we have the, the uh, ability to, to hold on to what this moment has thrown up and then turn it into long-term values and politics. That depends entirely on what we do. Actually, this um, brings about a very important concept as we were talking about, I was thinking, um, is that uh, this is a model institutionalized yet you know, in the uh, in the entire urban studies or entire urban uh, kind of urbanism kind of urban studies practices and so on, which is largely based on Western models and, um, and where there is a very uh, strong focus towards institutionalization of services, institutionalization of practices and so on. Now, um, I also uh, sort of saw that written uh, with uh, all of like Ananya Roy, who's uh, been um, a vocal proponent of uh, subaltern urbanism, and what we just described kind of moves towards that direction. It's not really the what one know about about the rest of the model of uh, institutionalized urbanization or urbanism. So, how do you think this kind of there can be a shift that can be shifted towards a more equitable, sustainable, and inclusive direction? Um, and what could be the architecture of that? Uh, because we don't know. How, what it should constitute, uh, what about and how we should kind of you know, uh, put it together. So, could you share your thoughts on? Uh, yeah, thanks, Aditya. That's that's actually a very um, very useful thing for me to uh, reflect on and articulate what my position at this point of time is because. You know, ever since the, the lockdown began, um, almost on a weekly basis, um, there are several of us who are trying to articulate and re-articulate what we are experiencing. And what does this mean for what we thought of as um, urban knowledge and urban theory? 
right? If we think of ourselves as urbanists, what kind of urbanists are we really? And it's a, it's a, uh, it has been a roller coaster ride. There are moments when we felt elated. There are moments when we felt uh, deeply depressed. There are moments when, when you try and think about uh, how all that we have been um, valuing all this while, all that we have been trying to teach our students. Uh, to what extent has that really stood us um, in, in good stead at this moment of time? And I think um, the the um, one thing that that struck uh, many of us is the way in which um, um, places have had to deal with this this lockdown on their own. You see, normally what happens uh, in, in uh, um, urban theory is that you start through some kind of a structured, um, scalar, institutional framework in which you say that, okay, so this is the national policy, this is the state policy, this is the urban policy, and so on. Right? And you go into the, the field, you realize that the field is throwing up all kinds of experiences and questions at you in which uh, um, all scales collapse into each other. What seems to have happened in this moment uh, of the lockdown and, and initially because you had a lot of people who were going hungry, who needed to be fed, and then uh, as the infections began to rise, how do you deal with the, uh, the home quarantine? How do you find beds for people in the hospital? Where do you procure oxygen cylinders in a market which seems to be um, growing increasingly tighter? Uh, people, I mean, just day before yesterday, somebody called me and said, you know, we've been trying to use industrial oxygen uh, because we live in, a, in, in an area where we have a lot of welding shops, right? We're just not getting medical oxygen, so we're trying to make do with what we have. So in a situation like this, um, what the first thing that, that strikes many of us is that um, we have actually been able to figure out how to do um, southern urban practice. And I'm using a slightly different word um, to describe what we do in terms of knowledge uh, from what you have used. You know, you're, you're referring to subaltern urbanism, and I'll come to that in a moment. Um, southern urban practices has always had to deal with this problem of the difference between practice and theory. right? You don't seem to have something called a canonical body of theory. You seem to be sometimes resisting, sometimes interrogating something else, sometimes providing thick descriptions, sometimes, you know, at best offering small intermediate level concepts that can travel. You seem to be doing a lot of hybrid things. You're doing all of this, but you really don't have any kind of a canonical body of theory. So the question is, is this a moment when, when we have been thrown into the world of practice so intensely and so violently? How do we then look back and think about theory? Right? Are we going to be able to come back to the library at some point of time and say that, okay, here is my field notes and I'm going to come and um, now produce theory? Is that theory even going to be useful once this window of crisis is over? Right? Are we going to be theorizing the past? Or are we going to be able to produce some kind of theory that is going to help us go forward? If that's the kind of challenges that you are thinking of as a southern urban practitioner or southern urban theorist, then 
I think in that context, this thing that that we are referring to as subaltern uh, urbanism would be actually useful. Subaltern urbanization is a concept that has multiple meanings. Like right? it's a very very valent uh, term. Um, over the last three four years, one uh, body of work that has emerged pretty strongly in India, which thinks about subaltern urbanization, essentially looks at small towns. It essentially looks at a number of processes which have been hidden from our metrics of the urban, right? It could be the census town, it could be the small town, it could be the urban center to which the rural comes, it could be a certain kind of consumption, it could even be a certain kind of non-agricultural production, which may have thrived for a while and then collapsed, you know, take a city like Sholapur, where you have had a very large number of mills which have suddenly now gone or you take Davangere town where they make churmure puffed rice which is now um, trying to uh, become a smart city all of these kinds of towns the kinds of knowledges that that emerge from these places this is what they've been thinking in terms of subaltern urbanization in another sense subaltern urbanization is also this kind of autonomous life which remains invisible to policymakers, to the metrics of urbanization that are available to us. And that's the world where Southern urban theory actually thrives, right? It's in the sense that this is, this is a world in which there are knowledges which are difficult to codify, which are, even if they're codified, they're difficult to transfer in, in uh, ways that we have already um, seen as documented knowledge. So essentially what happens is a lot of knowledge is transferred through practices. Right. So you have people across the country building septic tanks in the same way, even though there is no regulatory framework for training septic tank builders. Right. Everybody is doing the same thing. All our cities, even though under the Metro, uh, the, the Motor Vehicles Act, share auto rickshaws are illegal in most places. School children are taken in share auto rickshaws in most of our towns, right? They have figured out how to do this kind of a thing through practice. I think what COVID has done is to um, open up possibilities for that kind of knowledge to be drawn out and they have had to actively seek it out and articulate it. Because without that, we simply wouldn't have been able to deal with the challenges that the world is throwing at us. You know, so in many places, people were saying that, look, we have always believed that we, we should not be making hidden populations visible because it makes them vulnerable. But when you have a lockdown and you know that people are going hungry, you want to know where these people are because otherwise you will not be able to reach them food. Right. So that was the, that, that, that was the, 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 the challenge of this moment. And I think that's the promise of this moment as well. Right. Let me ask you something related. You talked about over the past few years, people in a sense, uh, can you hear me now? 
Yes, now I can hear you. Okay, so yeah, we seem to be having random bandwidth issues. So <laughs> uh, the question is: last few years, I've also been working mostly looking at air quality in uh, small towns, right? Mm -hmm. Not too far from NCR, looking at places like Bunshehar, Patiala, and Manithal. It's a, um, in terms of structure, in terms of how the cities operate, right? there's a difference in governance, but in terms of physically what happens in the city, how people live, mm -hmm. it's different. Right? So my question was a little broad in that, that do you think there's any key differences in the patterns of spreading urbanization we are seeing in megacities in India versus what are called tier two and tier three cities, right? which is not urbanization because of migration, but urbanization because of changing patterns of work, right? changing size in a certain sense. So, if you think there are key differences, what are these differences? If you think there are none, that most of that is superficial differences, then what are the mistakes we have been reproducing in terms of trying to understand how the cities function and how they are governed? Yeah. I think the big, big, the first, first big difference would actually be uh, differences that uh, manifest themselves because of the scale. See, the scale of the big city, the big metropolis, actually um, makes it possible for us to imagine uh, the urban only in terms of mega infrastructure. So you have to imagine this city in terms of large flyovers. You have to imagine this in terms of large transit systems and stuff like that, right? Whereas in the smaller uh, places, the, the opportunity to, to uh, move in another direction still exists. Whether we will be able to seize that opportunity or not is a different question, right? And that's the challenge simply because um, if you look at the consumption patterns, the vehicle ownership in smaller towns is no smaller uh, than the big cities. Um, people are buying uh, the same kinds of things even in smaller towns as, as people are buying them in the bigger cities. It's just that the, the fact that the density and the, the uh, spread, the sprawl, is much smaller, that you may still have opportunities for shifting something. The second issue, which I think the COVID challenge actually opens up for us, and this is something that we really need to think about, um, is that if a large number of people have gone back to their small towns or to their villages, even if it is for one season. What happens to these households which have now um, no opportunity to go to the city at least for some time? Right? So, for example, if it is an agrarian household which has decided that one part of the family will go to the city, um, whether it is a small town or to a large city, to bring in earning from wages, you know, about 40 to 50 percent of those households income comes from wages in the urban uh, labor market. If that money does not come back, come to those households this year, what are they going to do? Right? And I'm hearing 
as as I keep stay in touch with the migrants who have left Hyderabad, um, nobody is very clear about what they want to do. You know, in the case of some families, they go back to the village for agricultural operations. So the agricultural operations are beginning; they're continuing. So for a two, three, four months, they'll be okay. But at some point of time, this challenge will come up for them. In such a situation, are our smaller towns actually better destinations for migrant workers than these big cities? Are there ways in which we can imagine redistribution of productive economies um, away from big metropolitan areas? Are there ways in which we can reimagine the, the, the small town? This is something that we have. We have a long history of uh, policy making in which we have talked about urbanization. We have talked about small towns and all of that, but they've not really done anything much. Which is the reason why we, we we are now in a position where we have to talk about a suburban urban. Um, but maybe this is actually a good time for us to think about and produce a lot of knowledge about how people are figuring out this because. Often, you know, theory and, and new directions can emerge by simply tracking what people are themselves trying to do. Did we lose Aditya? Yeah, no, I'm here. Yeah. Okay. okay. Great. Um, yeah, actually, what you said um, kind of got me thinking about the scale, which you started off by saying that you know, the, of course, in the, in the mega cities, we are uh, you know just just uh, you know Hello. doing certain things uh, because of the scale uh, that we operate in, particularly in South Asia. Um, now, um, for the last let's say five years that um, that I actually personally been engaged with it. The, the whole idea of urban transformation in South Asia being quite, uh, you know, hotly debated and discussed kind of um, an area for many reasons. First of all, uh, you know, uh, let's say agencies like World Bank calling it complete chaos and mess, you know, uh, but then also the other group of scholars calling it that you know, urbanism is, or urbanization is going to be the future in terms of sustainability, conservation, uh, things like climate change adaptation, pollution, human security. So there's, there's this kind of contesting um, ideas and contesting kind of uh, theories emerging and where at, at one hand you have this uh, terrible chaos and terrible uh, mess. On the other hand, you have these kind of important, uh, in, a, uh, in, in a way, inevitable uh, movement towards urbanization and also the kind of opportunities it can bring about in terms of sustainability or conservation or even human security um, and so on I mean, and, and many other things. Now, um, how do you think that these two can be balanced, these kind of counterproductive, uh, uh, you know, ideas can be balanced and, you know, and this is, uh, you know, be systematized or uh, if, if it can at all be systematized and, you know, and then also how could we evolve a discourse around, um, which direction we need to transform, first of all, and what is the direction of the transformation and how, uh, how that process could evolve, how that process could be initiated, fostered in that sense. Um, 
See, Aditya, the way I, I, I've been trying to think about this is that um, a lot of the, the, the questions of uh, reimagining, reworking our cities, um, trying to, to take on different kinds of imaginations and then um, building alternatives from within that. A lot of these things actually struggle with this one simple question, you know, what kinds of jobs can we create? And I think we haven't really paid much attention to that question of what types of jobs are we able to create. And I think if we if we look at the uh, prosperity that came to our cities in the 80s, um, in, in, in many cities, um, it also was a time when there was a lot of horrible pollution that, that began to happen also at the same time. But one of the interesting things was that the, in the 80s, what we saw in many of our cities was the knowledge and technologies and techniques that, that emerged from the public sector undertakings, finding their way into local markets. You know, so you have the, uh, like in the 1970s, you had the, the Bharat Electronics Limited making the transistor radio. And saying, okay, here is the radio, here is the PCB, here are the components. You go and make your own radios, right? And then you have an entire radio industry emerging around Delhi, right? We all used to know it as the Delhi set. Uh, in the in the 80s, you had the television industry, which came out of uh, ECIL, which produced the television set, and then they produced the 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 components and said, you know, everybody can make this. So everybody started making television sets. And everybody was able to, you know, you make one cabinet, you make uh, uh, something else, you make something else. All sorts of things became possible. I think what we need to, what we have, what we have lost in the 90s, in the kind of urbanization that happened during that period, was that instead of releasing new technologies, new ways of doing things into the public, where people can take things and run with it at different scales, what we began to do was to take technology away from people, take technological practices and knowledges away from people. So you see, for example, now that you will find very few carpenters in cities who even know how to, to use a screwdriver and differentiate between the screwdriver and a hammer, right? because they've just not been doing the kind of work any longer. They are taking Malaysian furniture and then fixing it in, in, in one unit and then going away. Even that they have not really learned very much. So I think the key thing, whether we are talking about organic foods, are we talking about new technologies, uh, material technologies, whatever we are doing, we need to find ways of making this stuff easily accessible to people so that they can make and do things with it by themselves. And that's what we need to, to make investments in. If we don't do that, then this kind of dependence on one single source of employment, even though it seems distributed, but it is one single source of employment, right? I mean, take something like Uber, for example. Um, thousands of people enter into cab driving because of Uber. Uber is not really their employer. But if Uber goes down, all these guys are on the street. They don't know what to do. Okay. Right? So it's a very peculiar uh, uh, um, algorithm of, of uh, um, creating social formations that 
do not know how to autonomously manage themselves anymore right and on the other hand you have the older social formations in cities which are operated through and this is where you know a lot of hope really lies in smaller towns but even bigger cities actually do have a lot of these kind of formations for example in hyderabad we have this place called bolakpur where a lot of the waste in the city is processed right they deal with um air condition copper uh, coils in air conditioners to um computers to mobile phones to raw hide just about everything they deal with in that area but what is interesting is that the place actually sustains itself because of um social organization which is not directly connected to the trade okay right it's a community organization which is behind all of this which sets the rules it sets the rules about how much interest can be charged by for what kind of loans and that makes a huge difference right and i think that if we if we if we, if we recognize and political parties recognize this civil society has not recognized it because civil society you know has a tendency to imagine the world in in uh, very secular terms uh, and that that's a very brutal kind of secularism right it's brutal in the sense that it doesn't recognize the fact that people are marked by all kinds of identities all kinds of affiliations and so on if we take those things into account and then then figure out what kinds of new technologies new knowledges can be brought into that i think we can really really sort out a lot of the problems that way we definitely need to create a lot many new types of jobs in our cities because of changes in the demographies in our cities right that's there's a lot of cultural work yeah of course <laughs> so let me take you up on that when when you talk about jobs different kinds of jobs needing to be created right but the trend seems to be in a sense um automation even in the home right one outcome of covid has been what almost a 20 fold increase in the sale of dishwashers right i know <laughs> uh, that's the last set of numbers i saw now the point is that given that the indian upper middle classes upper classes right, are so dependent on external labor right? i have neighbors who have people come in to operate their washing machines and their dishwashers right? so it's yeah. not It's a question of shifting labor. It's also a question of class and how they see particular tasks. Right? Mm. So now the skill set required for the housemaid is not washing clothes by hand, but washing clothes in the machine. Right? Absolutely. So that's a different kind of labor. So the broader question is that when we talk of urban labor patterns changing, right? The different sets of skills coming together like you said about carpenters i mean the same holds true of electricians yes and even in a workshop in the university setting that up right? supposedly some of the best people the jindal steel could send to set it up i knew more <laughs> about electrical connections and tools available in india right i'm not talking about tools that i might have dragged home from the us but tools available in india that most of these 
technicians and mostly men almost all men are not exactly available. yes and yes. everything else has changed but that has been changed <laughs> yeah so <laughs> they just the carpenter thing you said their idea of putting a screw in something is to hammer it in right despite me very pedantically trying to explain that the whole point of a screw is that you don't eat up so much of the wood and you get larger contact area is not interested right is kitchen yeah. we have a custom designed building that some of us had designed meant for architecture and built environment students to be able to see everything except mm-hmm. they buried things which were supposed to be exposed and exposed things which should have been buried in terms of wiring and piping and things <laughs> because they didn't quite get the concept all the guys working on that's so another issue is that a lot of academic work gets done in terms of construction of expertise in terms of labor but most of it i find quite irrelevant and i get into academic fistfights with people on this issue it says oh you just don't want to do the work and i point out that there is no work to be done yeah how does that link in with not just the changing demographics of the population but aspirations mm-hmm. why would i want to spend an entire day chopping cutting through wood and hammering wood when i can make the same income at least in my head by sitting in a room and typing things away on a keyboard yeah no uh, giri this this is this is why i said this is a structural thing right i mean your aspiration may be telling you that that's what you want to do but i don't think that such jobs are not so easily available anymore right labor market is changing and there is only certain number of jobs for certain types of people and i think that that reality is going to hit people very hard now it has already begun to hit them now the thing that we need to really think about is i think this is where this is where we really need to pay a lot of attention to to how do we teach what do we teach right um i mean i in the last two years every year uh, before the monsoons i do a quick survey of of uh, students of architecture graduates of architecture to find out how many of them actually know how to do rainwater harvesting in hyderabad zero they all start looking at looking for links in youtube they just haven't thought how to do it right and the city is going on talking about rainwater harvesting the government talks about rainwater harvesting nobody knows anything about soil structure nobody knows how to fix a tube nobody knows how to retrofit a building to do rainwater harvesting and and we go on doing this right so the thing to do then is should this education be happening inside the university classroom should it be happening outside of it are we looking at a moment now when there is at least some um, ground to be covered by what may be called some kind of a post university you know not not in the sense of you know after your graduation not not in the sense of post graduation but in the sense of stuff that cannot be done in the university context easily by itself in isolation from the outside world so in that sense is there is there a possibility of imagining that kind of education right can we run for example um how to repair a building a course on that for architecture students and will that then somehow bring them closer to the fitters the welders 
the 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 masons and so on is there a way in which we can do this kind of stuff we are trying i'll put in a plug for jsa that that has been our goal from day one right? that yeah. not teach i mean i've tried that at different places and got kicked in the head for my days <laughs> that <laughs> all of snu's engineering program to uphold it literally <laughs> eliminate departments and have what i call core engineering right? simultaneously as importantly history anthropology sociology but there's such a deep rooted resistance in academia to any of that because you're essentially destroying the livelihoods of a few yeah. thousand people <laughs> who don't know how to do anything else and are not willing to do anything else so that is the largest part like even at jsa right? when the university in a sense gave us complete freedom to structure programs how we like right? we have to spend and we hire faculty carefully but we still have to spend about 6 months says almost a year essentially reforming them to start thinking ahead and differently from what they actually learnt in their degrees mm. dealing with the university administration on who wants us to give them percentage marks for something and give them exams and things right mm. we don't we don't do that we have no exams in jsa so yeah but how would you you can do that in certain conditions certain financial conditions i mean obviously jindal the students coming to jindal are from a different economic class than the rest of the world in a sense right so we can to do that right their parents are not that concerned whether these kids will find a job or not mm -hmm. so that allows us some space for experimentation but how do you expand this space in a much larger context even outside of like you were saying post university that what is the meaning of university education has never been debated in this context in india right we all carry on debates that were developed in western europe and to a certain extent in north america about the difference between university education and practical education and whatever else you might want to label it but i have missed i mean I, pedagogy is not my area but i have not seen any detailed investigation of that the looping it back to that everybody keeps saying that oh covid 19 is a moment for the universities but the moment seems to be just dump everything online and do that there hasn't been any thinking about what has has it forced any institution to rethink how they impart education what is not just the content but the form and the meaning of that any thoughts on that this is sort of what is actually interesting is that uh, i've been listening to a number of uh, students of architecture you know the who, who graduated who been watching an, a lot of the the panel discussions on on online on uh, what covid means to cities and then almost all of them have their jaws dropping and and asking um but you are basically telling us that we should do more of what actually did not work all of these years i mean you just haven't been able to do any of this stuff so why are you saying that we should do this if we had been able to do this then you wouldn't have this problem to begin with right so if you haven't been able to do it then there must be a reason and that's what we need to reflect on right 
and why is it that we instead of asking that question you are telling us that you know what we haven't done in the last 40 years we must do now which is impossible to do anyways if it had been possible you would have done it i think what what is happening is that and this is where our um, our, our hope must lie that you know cities and, and and human habitations where people live together have a way of sorting out things for themselves right so there are actually going to be a lot of young people who are going to turn around and say that what nonsense is this right you're going to have a lot of young people who are not going to be able to find jobs and they're going to ask questions and i think that one of the interesting things that 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 we are seeing in a lot of uh, the the current employment situation is that people are increasingly realizing that there is no durability to any job right and that is what that, that's why we we keep constantly referring to this as the precariat but it's a very peculiar precariat you know it's not the precariat of the the uh, of the uh, old classical marxist class right this is a precariat in the sense that it recognizes it's a group of people it's a social formation that recognizes at the individual level that this branch that i am perched on could break any time so i need to learn to hop right and that 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 sensibility that they need to hop i think is where our hope lies now at one level you can look at it and say that you know this is a very depressing thing none of these guys don't pay attention to anything they don't hold on to anything but we could also think of this as a certain kind of of uh, uh, mistrust in 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 any promise of durability which is essentially false they can sense that it is false it's not going to work and i think it's that ability it's it's that realization that people have that we need to respond to and be able to give what what that situation demands and as i keep thinking about this you know very often we we think about one of my friends faran who who works a lot with new technologies and keeps constantly building new startups he he one of the things that he has often um, commented on is that it's the free bus pass that is the cheap bus pass that actually made me who i am because when i was in college i could take that bus pass jump into a bus go to a bookshop go to a small uh, book vendor go to a repair shop and learn things i would just go hang out there right it's that mobility in the city which gave me the opportunities of course i had all kinds of privileges a lot of people don't have those privileges but ultimately it is the fact that i was able to move around in the city which gave me those possibilities and we keep coming across this constantly in in hyderabad you know it's a very divided city you have people locked up in places um, all around the city in different locations and it has become worse now but the key thing for them is how do they go and explore other places who else can they meet in the city right what else can they pick up and i think it's that that sensibility that they need to keep picking up multiple skills like on our street we had this chai wala who uh, would um, initially plan to go home and set up a tent shop and a furniture shop and start saving up for that some point he realizes that is not going to work so he he um, invests his time in learning how to repair mobile phones 
so he is someone who knows how to make chai sell it on the street sell it in apartment complexes figure out who is going likely to drink more chai and persuade them to drink keep drinking chai throughout the day even if they don't want it but at the same time also learn how to to repair a mobile phone right and at some point of time he'll figure out what to do with himself you go to the the high tech city area you will constantly keep running into people who have experimented with different kinds of occupations you know somebody who starts off as a security guard turns into a chai wala from there he becomes a dosa maker from there he goes into something else it's this it's this flexibility it's this ability to to uh, keep moving that requires a certain kind of sensibility and i think that is what is actually missing in a lot of middle class families right and that the, the, the little bit of it which is there goes into this imagination of a startup that you can create and then sell off after one year which usually doesn't work but this whole startup culture actually i think comes from that and that's where we need to focus so we need to look at micro enterprises we need to look at people of various age groups we need to make connections within those age groups yeah now we have a couple of questions from the audience on this but i'll hold on to that until aditya had another question he wanted to ask you yes uh, this actually is a, is a kind of a very personal kind of a question uh, for that matter now i um i've been doing some work about urban imagination uh, in in its residents different classes of residents let's say right from the upper classes to the middle classes to the lower middle classes and so on now what you said just now is actually is, is resonates quite well with that uh, imagination micro organization so you are talking about uh, a vision or an ima- imagination which is based on uh, sort of individual uh, ingenuity or you know their adaptability and so on um but then you know uh, in various metros largely urban uh, middle class and upper middle class in, in larger metros like let's say for example mumbai um, where i spent a lot of time <clears throat> you know you seem to identify urbanization or urbanism with uh, kind of certain kind of pride and certain kind of you know let's say mega structures monuments like the early um ceiling for example i mean despite the fact that it's a very bad investment and the fact that it has destroyed the you know uh the entire ecology of that region and also that the fact that it doesn't just make economic sense by the number of cars which use it and you know and so on now if you ask uh, you know an average resident of mumbai and say that you know this is what i identify the city with this is the kind of you know the next shanghai or the you know the big dream the big urban dream and so on and so forth like you know so so there is obviously kind of some sort of a disruption between uh, between the imagination of different groups for example the upper middle classes as opposed to the you know more moderate classes and so on so how do we bridge these sort of you know you know the kind of a uniform universal imagination urban imagination is kind of a poster uh, a, a unified discourse around that that's a hard one um aditya because i think one of the 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 challenges here is that uh, you know neoliberalization 
in, in, in as much as it's an ideological process produces a certain kind of subject right it's a subject that that valorizes living in the moment right it's a subject that responds in a particular way and cannot really um, think beyond that right so the imagination it is not actually as if that, that the imagination is something that they believe in and they will hold on to or anything like that it's right. just that there is a certain um, way of doing things um, in terms of you know everyday practices that, that that one doesn't want to get out of like for example in hyderabad when the um, there was this massive campaign around um, um, some tree cutting that was going to happen in an urban forest area and there were these activists who were standing outside the park and distributing pamphlets uh, to uh, people who were passing by and this was actually going to cut into the jogger's path that was there and there was this jogger who was coming along he was stopped and he was given this pamphlet and the interesting thing was the man was very upset he said look you broke my rhythm <laughs> right and these people were trying to explain to him that look we broke your rhythm but we're telling you that tomorrow this path may not be here if you don't understand this and he said i don't care right now i'm it's my rhythm that matters to me right it's that kind of a, of a, of a living in that moment some kind of a zen like existence which people seem to be aspiring to um, it will only be broken by the structural uh, instabilities of this thing itself and that is one of the things that i have um, i mean i, I I won't say that it works all the time, but very often what happens is um, you can't really hold so much of, of ugliness. At some point of time, it has to break down. And it does break down, right? So, um, I mean, most of the, the big projects that, that did not take off in Hyderabad, they did not take off not because of popular opposition. They did not take off simply because of internal contradictions. Right. Okay. Right. And I think that we need to recognize that there are internal contradictions within these classes. Some of those have to do with belief systems. Some of those have to do with uh, uh, the dynamics of capital itself. Some of it has to do with the 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 kind of uh, um, I mean the, the sheer calculability or lack of calculability in certain spaces you may imagine that this is what a balance sheet is going to look like two years from now and you may have applied the best minds to it and it just may completely go all right in the right. next six months right things go wrong and i think that we need to place some trust and faith in that unpredictable stuff that happens around in the world and be able to 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 um to catch on to, you know, in, in some ways, read the tea leaves as to where those fractures might lead us to. You know, in 2008, when the, the big crisis was going to hit, we began to see very random kinds of suicides happening in households because of tensions of that, that the mortgage market had brought in, right? How do you connect the two is something that's not easy unless you're you're attentive to, to, to some of these sensibilities which were I right 
So I mean, I might sound very mysterious when I'm saying all of this, but that's not my point. I'm saying that that we need to to place a lot more faith in in things that happen without our volition, without our scheming, our planning. You know, so one of my friends said that we have to to place our faith in the city because the city has a way of healing itself. The city has a way of sorting things out. So, um, I'll ask you something. A couple of the audience had said that when you were talking about making the visible invisible or the conflict between some people saying that the invisible are better off staying invisible, right? That so the question was that there's also a kind of fear that comes from this kind of making visible. Right? That how do you orient it that becoming visible, making visible brings positive processes, outcomes? Right? So hmm. any thoughts on I that? I mean, I, no, I, I can answer that only um, through thinking about a couple of examples, right? So. Um, it's a very strange um, period this entire lockdown has been. Um, right up front in the beginning, several of us were saying that we need to have some way of estimating uh, how many people are likely to go hungry at what point of time in the coming weeks. right? And we constantly found that there was a lot of resistance to that estimation. And, and, and I was puzzled by the fact that that a government might not actually want to know how many people are likely to go hungry in the coming weeks. And later, I realized that this, this refusal to know has to do with the fact that we don't, we are not confident that we can actually meet the expectations. If we are not confident that we can meet the consequences, then we don't want to know. Right? It's like, I don't want to know what is the groundwater table in a particular area, because if I know, then I might actually end up screwing the real estate market there. Right? So I'm actually not going to even find out. So it, in a situation like that, what happened was that we had the government not wanting to know on the one side. And on the other side, we have a lot of people who were unwilling to find out or declare or tell the world that they needed something. And this is actually happening right now at this point of time in a very, very scary way, where because families have figured that if you take the patient to the hospital, if he tests positive, then you're, you'll probably not even be able to say goodbye to that person when he dies. And you may not be able to get the body back and be able to bury it with some degree of dignity and respect. In a situation like that, I don't even want to know whether it is coronavirus or not. So I'm not going to test. So if I'm not going to test now, am I actually putting other people at risk? How big is this risk? We don't know. Right? Now, what should I do as someone who is concerned about the, the possibility of the disease spreading? Should I raid the house and find out? Unfortunately, I don't even have the capacity to do that. So I'm going to say that, you know, it's okay if they don't want to know, I don't want to bother them. Uh, but it might also be a dangerous thing to do because you don't know how many 
how it is going to escalate so in a situation like that how do you resolve it my answer to that in the last 20 25 years of my own work has always been that you enable it the, those people to make a choice for themselves right they should not be forced to take a decision out of fear so you figure out how the the problem of uh, once you are tested positive your body may disappear at the other end without your family even getting to know about it deal with that problem right make it possible for families to be in touch with the patient make it possible for the families to have some say in how the body will be buried at the end of the day do all of this and then they will make the decision i don't think that we can impose this on them unless we want to think of it at some point of time and there are governments which are capable of doing that and i know that there are state governments which are actually doing something like this where they say look this is a war situation i am not going to ask for consent i am not going to ask for people's aspirations and is going to go ahead and test i am going to uh, monitor them and if they don't have food i'm going to feed them but that's a very colonial medical approach um there are times when some governments will end up doing that my approach would be to to make sure that people will be able to decide for themselves yeah but i mean a related thing in uh, urban spaces like look at the number of demolitions that are going on right mm-hmm. delhi three areas the state has done demolitions right in the middle of and at the same time they're talking about people staying securely inside their homes and then they go and destroy people's home in the name of removing encroachment i mean which is a whole contentious thing in and of itself yeah in not just in delhi i mean multiple places this has happened right chatisgarh yeah. just yesterday there's another think that people who have been living in an industrial estate area for close to 30 years right are suddenly being threatened with demolition and the courts had to shut down in two days because the judges suddenly became scared of the corona virus mm-hmm. so how does the state reconcile that and keep in mind the background thing that courts including our current supreme court has said multiple times that providing housing is a positive duty of the government right mm-hmm. so unable to provide housing at the same time when people have provided housing for themselves taking that away and a yeah. large part of this being done under the name of the amrut mission the mm-hmm. public parks yeah the mission actually says public spaces for the poor and marginalized so mm-hmm. how would you even explain the logic behind saying i want to provide a park for you but for that i have to break your house down yeah absolutely i mean that those are the kinds of things that we have always resisted right and that, that that is the thing that there are there are i think one of the the things that we have not had to face until now this is the first time that we are actually facing it in such an intense manner ki if the the kind of housing in which people are living is actually um unhygienic it is actually causing illnesses if it is actually at risk for it, it causing risk to those families itself 
and this is something which is actually there in the law itself right the the slum um, act always mentions that there are untenable slums and untenable slums the untenable slums are the ones which are in hazardous areas or they violate of course somebody else's property rights but the hazardous areas thing how do you set that that bar how do you decide that this is actually in the line of in the path of danger if you haven't done that and if you haven't been able to address that question then what happened in gopal would happen any time and every time everywhere right azadnagar populations were living very close to the factory they shouldn't have been living there at all in the first place and we have had so many people die yeah so i mean all of that hinges on alternate housing yes absolutely it is not able to provide alternate housing then at least i think it has no business taking away people's housing however has this it may be yeah so but that's where we need to work with the community right you need to figure yeah. out what community i mean for example i remember working in, you know about 25 years ago uh, 20 years ago with a group of uh, women who were tested hiv positive and on the basis actually offered just a screening test mm-hmm. right there were no confirmation test 6 months down the line they were tested they were declared aids patients because you know a whole lot of projects needed aids patients so they just figured out how to declare them as aids patients now the women essentially said that that uh, uh, i said look i know that the test itself does not confirm anything but wouldn't you want to know and they said look at this point of time we are being told that if we are aids cases then we will die at some point of time right you're not offering me any you uh, opportunity to live a decent life so if i'm if i'm positive if i'm actually an aids patient i don't want to know what will i gain by knowing because the life that you're giving me is ridiculous so i don't want to know and therefore i'm not going to actually get tested even by a reliable place now you tell me what you have to offer me right and then i In, in the conversations what actually emerged was something very interesting at some point of time the women suddenly realized that so you are basically saying that this economy needs us right there are projects there are programs there is research stuff there is ngos there is there is a shelter home that has to be built there are logics here which have nothing to do with our well being and if that is the case then do you think we can bargain So I said, go ahead and try, and they actually did. They got a very, very decent deal from all of the projects because they said, "Look, you need us much more than we need you." But that doesn't always work, right? Yeah. Rehabilitation is not always uh, something where where people can can be consulted or need to be consulted. You can just bulldoze them. That's why we have to have all these. movements that resist any kind of 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 intervention that doesn't take people into account so um i'm trying to see if we have any questions on the q and a segment don't know if that's open. i not see azad is the q and a open for people in the audience to ask questions yes So the questions are in the chat. Yeah, I saw those 
couple of them. Yes, so that's all. One was more a comment, and that Prasad has. Yes. Let's see, Anand, if you can. Okay, so another another two three minutes. If you have any question, just fine. Otherwise, we can wind. Okay. So one thing was that when you were talking about people needing to learn to hop, right? Mm -hmm. Part of that is also there's a whole generation. I mean, people in their sixties, seventies now who if hopping as something really bad, right? In fact, yes. I won't even say seventies. I mean, a lot of people in their forties, fifties. The ultimate goal in life is to find a stable job. Right? Yeah. For the middle classes, particularly, that if you have a job that no one can fire you from, right? Like say IIT mm -hmm. faculty. Yeah. You can do whatever the hell you want. You never get fired. Right? So yes. That that perception of, and at least to me, I mean, I agree with you that if people are not ready to hop. They're not mm -hmm. in their skills either. Right? So we have mm -hmm. people who are teaching stuff that their teachers, teacher had written down sometime in the 50s in a notebook. Right? And just mm -hmm. now they take new textbooks and assign things from the back of that. Right? Mm -hmm. This is just from an academic job perspective, but similar things happen in industries. Right? Yes. That's part of the problem in any kind of skilled industry. So how does one actually not not that without forcing people into it? Most people who learn hopping, the people you were referring to, the people I'm aware of, are doing it out of sheer maybe terror is not the wrong word, but economic fear. Right? That they need to multiple skills because who knows tomorrow the branch beneath them might break. The police may come yes. and take away my chest all. Right? So I need to be able to earn a living some other way. But how do you spread that to say that, look, it's not, hopping does not mean that you change from job X to job Y. Hopping also yeah. means you change the relevant skills, what you do. Right? Mm -hmm. And in no, I, 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 I totally get what, what, what you're to Girish, I think that the, the real challenge is what do we, how do we teach um, people to take their work seriously, um, whether through whether they are hopping or not hopping, uh -huh. um, that, that this is work that needs to be uh, done with a certain kind of respect. I think. Increasingly, with uh, um, the the with the people getting knocked around that is going to begin to happen on its own. You know? So for example, I was thinking about the number of people, young people that I know who've been through about 15, 20 years of work in uh, uh, the IT sector. Many of them have begun to realize that in their early 40s, they have now suddenly hit the glass roof. They can't actually go through it. They can't rise anymore within the organization. Now they don't know what to do. They, they have uh, uh, um, house mortgages, they have loans that they have to uh, pay up, they have their children's education bills to pay up, all of that. But at some point of time, they hit this, uh, this point where 
they are no longer sure what they are doing. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them imagine that they can actually get into the new startup ecosystem and fail. Some of them don't know what to do and they get into a terrible depression. So I think what we need to do is a lot of social experimentation now to, to uh, make it possible for people to reimagine their own worlds and the cities in which they are living. And I mean, how do I put this? In Hyderabad, for example, somebody started a Hyderabad, Greater Hyderabad Adventure Club, which is basically a club meant for people to come out onto the streets, um, go and climb a rock, go and see some um, old tree, whatever. 12,000 members. 12,000 members constantly taking off every weekend to some place or the other. Uh, where does that come from? It comes from a certain kind of ennui that has entered into everybody's lives. And that ennui, to that ennui now, I think we have a new kind of terror that has emerged because of the COVID situation. Because you could lose your job and you're actually realizing that you're going to be confined to your own house. You don't know whether you will be able to go back to your office because many offices are now saying that, you know, we can work at 30% capacity in our main infrastructure. So people are worried about whether the real estate stuff will even work with all of these companies um, now saying, okay, people can work from home. I think things are changing. Hmm. And that's so, what we need um, to do. Okay. Um, we have a couple of questions on the Q&A, right? Yes. You can see them too. You want to answer some of that? And let me see. Um, collapsing of scales provides us a new view of problem. Gaps. This concept discuss some understanding of the reimagining of small terms where you could talk. Um, hmm. I think the, the, the reimagining of the small towns, a bunch of new opportunities that have come up, and I don't know whether anybody will really uh, be having the imagination or creativity to work with this. The Smart Cities mission has actually created possibilities for people to think about how to rework their cities, created some platforms. In some towns, they have actually done a decent job. In other towns, they haven't done it. Whether we can actually think in terms of some kind of a small town, town scale platform where some of these conversations will happen. I think that's where our political challenge will really lie. Because these towns are going to face new challenges, new kinds of opportunities, new stuff that they have to deal with, with their hinterlands going through a different kind of problems. Um, can we create those kinds of new platforms at the small town scale itself or at the scale of, you know, four or five of such towns that belong to one particular region? So take, for example, Balaghat in Madhya Pradesh, from where we have seen a large number of migrant workers coming into Hyderabad city to work in the construction sector. But what we know about that entire region is part of it is something that has gone under mining, part of it is something that has gone under uh, depleting forest cover with agriculture by itself not expanding enough to provide 
enough employment and enough surplus can the towns and the villages there reimagine their economies and come up with some possible answers what kinds of new infrastructures do they need for making that happening i don't know how that conversation can be started but that's the best way to actually build something like that um what is the relevance of urbanism in india and how can urbanism be used to understand india's villages the way i, I think of this is that um essentially we have a technical definition of what urban means and that definition is very very limited uh, most of us when we say urban we have a discursive understanding of the urban as something which are these large buildings which are these businesses which has tutorial colleges which has hospitals which has trains and so on but in terms of a of a measurement of what is urban we have this sense of defining what is urban so you have the um, size of the population you have the uh, density limit and then you have the employment or or economic um, measurement of how many men um, are out of agriculture in a given year now this is not the only way we can think about the urban right um, one of the the, the the most striking ways in which we can think about the urban the transformation into the urban is to think about what happens to agricultural land the boundaries of agricultural property are never straight and regular polygons but the moment it becomes urban property for residents you are no longer concerned about whether it is black soil red soil how much of it is getting water where that's not what you think about you think about how do i lay the road how do i lay the pipe so that services can be distributed and run efficiently which means that you need to have regular polygons for uh, the city to the urban to operate more efficiently now this has consequences for culture this has consequences for consumption this has consequences for uh, politics this has consequences for taxation all of that right i think if we take it that urbanism is about trying to make makers um, a certain kind of built environment work well for us and that built environment could be in the rural right in the middle of a farm it could be in the city 20 miles away it could be in the city 500 miles away if we recognize that 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 urbanism is about creating built environments that work for us meaningfully sustainably over a long period of time in culturally appropriate forms then i think that the kinds of skills imaginations attitudes that we need to bring to that will be what we will be mostly focusing on and i think that is basically where we haven't done enough work and to my mind thinking about the uh, jsa as a place where you actually think in terms of urbanism and urban studies uh, through built environment rather than you know a school of architecture that's where the book really lies you're working with urbanism and it it can it can go to kishangarh it can go to um, to darbanga it can go to um, a small village in balia it can go anywhere
Cool. So if we don't have any more questions, I guess we can end today's session. Yes, please. Thanks, Anand. Dhruvi, you want to close this out? Uh, yes. Uh, we're extremely grateful to Dr. Maniganti for his time. We at GSA have learned a lot from his wisdom. We also thank Professor Girish Agarwal and Professor Aditya Ghosh for the engaging conversation. Today's podcast was the third in a series of open discussions centered around open issues being hosted by the BA Built Environment Studies Program at the Jindal School of Art and Architecture. Many thanks to Mr. Azad Ali for the technical support in organizing the webinar. The next webinar in this series will be on materials and making, featuring the work of Arjit and Asha on the Mandalore tiles and Kurt Gambetta on uh, histories of cement and concrete in South Asia. In conversation with Professor Sarovar Zaidi, hosted by the architecture program held on 29 July. Thank you.